You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 121 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today we are discussing brains. Brains. It's, it's so hard not to say that. Maybe we should have done this one in October. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if every time we've discussed this episode between the two of us getting ready for it, it's like, all right, how's brains coming? Brains. brains. <laughs> it's it's a, a <laughs> reflex. So what are we talking about? <laughs> brains. We're going to discuss the organ, the brain. As in, what is it? You know, what is a brain? What makes it a brain? What is our brain? Because our brain is a very complex thing that we have studied immensely. We as a species are very proud of it. Oh, yes. We, we think it's pretty great. So we're going to go through a semi-detailed, you know, uh, not actually detailed since it's the brain, no. semi-detailed <laughs> walkthrough of our mind, how it compares to other brains, and then we'll talk a little bit about how do we study brains of the past and what do we think might be some of the evolutionary history of brains. Yeah, this is one of a few episodes that we've done on body parts. Yeah. We've had a handful of those. Uh, the, the now, this is a really Im- special and impressive organ. It so is. This will be a fun one. Yeah, it's it's a bit different than a, a tooth. Because yes. this, this organ does a lot. <laughs> this, this organ is producing this podcast. Yes, it is. <laughs> Brought to you by brains like brains. yours. The other reason we're discussing this topic is because it was requested. By our requesters. Yes, our requesters, who this time are Renee, Milu, and Jonathan. Thank you very much. And of course, as a reminder to everyone, we are always filling up our list of requests. If there's an episode topic you want to hear, let us know. Absolutely. We don't like to pick it. We don't like to have to think of topics ourselves anymore. So we just let you all tell us. That's right. And before we get into the episode, some quick announcements. As usual, our first announcement is the fact that we have a Patreon. We do. People can subscribe and support us there. And they do in great numbers and quantities and qualities and are funding us top to bottom these days. Humbling numbers. It is amazing. And when you come on to support us there, if you do it at a certain level, we like to reward you. We reward everyone with little goodies. But one of the things we like to do is to shout your name out and thank you here on the podcast. So thank you and welcome to... Our new patrons, Donna, Rexanne, Rebecca, Grim, Red, and Carrick. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Like Will said, you get all sorts of cool goodies if you join us on Patreon. Bonus content, behind-the-scenes peaks, stuff like that. If you want to support the podcast or just support us putting some science discussion out into the world. We appreciate it every time. Hey, speaking of doing bonus stuff, even though this isn't really bonus now that it's the fourth time in the row of us doing it. Kind of expected it's now. A, now it's just scheduled. October's coming up. It sure is. Which means Spooky is coming up. Every year in October for the last several years, we have done a series called Spookulative Evolution. Where we like to speculate on how famous creatures and monsters might be able to exist Via our planet's rules of evolution. Yes, and as with the last few years, we will be having a four-part Spooky series this October. And we have a topic in mind, but we will wait a little bit longer before we reveal it. Yes, stay tuned, Spooky fans. Uh, building up the building up the 
anticipation a little bit. Well, we're using the MCU model of, well, we've got to keep that <laughs> hype is, train. This is a teaser for the announcement. Exactly. <laughs> so we'll get a glimpse of the shadow of Spooky. So stay tuned. Next episode, we will officially announce our topic for this year's Spooky. Absolutely. We have to start doing after credits now for the... Like oh just, yeah, after credit yeah. scenes. At, at the end of the music, we'll say one little <laughs> couple words. <laughs> and our last announcement, um, it was brought to our attention that Will was wrong. That well, I'm getting there. <laughs> that last episode, it may have uh, been mentioned during one of the newses that there were 30 million species of fish. Will might have accidentally well, we don't need increased to say who. the number of fish by a thousand times. Some would say that's a, that's a benevolent <laughs> and, and altruistic thing to do. This was during one of our news bits last episode, where you were offhandedly describing the diversity of fish. Yeah, it was talking about how diverse fish and insects are, and if maybe venom is part of the reason that they have reached those levels. Yep. And whilst reading the numbers, we had just been discussing our million downloads and my brain was so excited to put million into every sentence that instead of saying 30,000 species of fish I said 30 million so there there's 30,000 <laughs> still a lot we got uh called out on this slip up on the internet a couple times just right away too I'm gonna read my favorite this is uh, Alejo on Twitter tweeted you ever be listening to the Common Descent podcast at the grocery store on your headphones and do a double take when they say there's 30 million species of fish? <sighs> Laughing emoji. <laughs> the, the emoji hurt. A couple of people did uh, take to the internet to let us know that that number was a few zeros too many. Yep. So in case anyone listened to the last episode and went off into the world with the thought of there being just a preposterous amount of species of fish, there Which, aren't. Which is a I mean, wonderful thought to go about your day with. That's a nice world to think of. And to be fair, there is a preposterous number. <laughs> like 30,000 is still three times the number of bird species and lizard species, lizards plus snakes. That's a big number. Yes. But it's not. They're not beetles. No. <laughs> so I, I, I rescind the 30 million. Uh, I was over enthusiastic. <laughs> and with that. We can wrap up our announcements, which brings us to our next section, the news. Every episode, we like to gather up some recent science news from the worlds of paleontology, geology, evolutionary sciences, etc., etc., and share them here on the podcast to keep us up to date and keep you all up to date. David, what's the news? I have two newses today. Oh, okay. And the first one is about a turtle huh? from the fossil record inside of an egg. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it's pretty cool. This is research by Yu Jung Ke et al. in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, and we'll link to an article on live science by Laura Gegel. That link will be in the blog post. Every episode, there's a blog post after the episode. Hey. The Mesozoic Era, the so-called Age of Reptiles, has produced lots of exciting fossils, predominantly of dinosaurs, and included among those exciting fossils are lots of eggs, predominantly of dinosaurs. But not only dinosaur eggs, we've found fossilized eggs of pterosaurs, and we have found fossilized eggs of other things. For more about this, go check out our eggs episode, episode 92. But one group that is particularly rare in the fossil egg record is turtles. Huh. Episode 60. <laughs> this study presents a turtle egg with an embryo inside, fossilized within. The authors say that, to their knowledge... 
This is the first identification and description of a fossilized turtle embryo inside an egg. Wow. Has not been described before. The egg itself comes from the late Cretaceous, about 90 million years ago, from the Hunan province of China, and because it's the future, they were able to 3D scan the egg to get a nice analysis of the embryo within. Thusly, they were able to identify the turtle as belonging to an extinct group called Nanshunkiliidae, which are a land-dwelling group of turtles. So either in the article or the paper, they were described as flat terrestrial turtles. (laughs) which I assume means they didn't have, like, the domed shells of giant tortoises. Yeah, I'm picturing, like, pancake tortoises. Right. It seems terrestrially adapted turtles are not particularly common or commonly known from back during this time. And in particular, this group has been suggested to have lived in harsher, drier environments. That this was a, if not, like, desert tortoise, but living on land adapted for environments that would be a little bit tougher uh, for most animals to live in. The embryo, it is suggested, is possibly belonging to the species Euchiles nanyangensis, although identifying a species from embryonic remains is always going to be difficult. Especially when it's your first. (laughs) Especially when it's your first. Uh, We discussed in episode 33 about ontogeny. Animals change throughout their lifespan, so a lot of the features you use to identify a species come from adults, and they might not look the same in an embryo. So maybe that particular species. They report that the embryo appears to have been about 85% of the way through its development, so perhaps near ready to hatch. The egg itself, uh, the Live Science article describes it as being about tennis ball sized. (laughs) It is roughly two by two inches. It's roughly spherical, about two inches or five and a half centimeters across. Which, as far as I'm aware, is pretty common for turtle eggs to be spherical. To be spherical. This, in terms of the size, uh, they note one of the largest known Mesozoic turtle eggs, only slightly smaller than Galapagos tortoise eggs. Oh, wow. That this is a hefty egg for a turtle. The fossil was discovered in 2018 by a farmer and then donated to the university. The authors used a calculation, apparently, that relates egg size to adult size in turtles. Huh. Which makes me raise an eyebrow a little bit and go, "How? I I wonder how consistent that is. Yeah, I wonder if it's just measuring a bunch of turtles and their eggs today. I get the way the article made it sound. I think this came from the Live Science article, so and it did not go into a lot of detail made it sound like this was a known ratio. Yeah. But I don't know any details, and I this paper is not open access, so I cannot access the full paper. I wonder if it's like the croc snout versus full length. That yeah. It's just like, for those who study these animals, this is this is a thing that's been known for a while. Yeah. To the extent that that is reliable, they calculated, based on the egg size, that the adult would have had a carapace, so the upper part of the shell, over five feet or a meter and a half long. So, like, big sea turtle sized. Wow. This is a big turtle. And the egg shell is unusually thick. The egg shell is 0.07 inches or 1.8 millimeters in thickness. Wow. Now, because that doesn't mean anything to any of you or to me, (laughs) for comparison, Laura Giggle conveniently offers some comparisons. That is about four times the thickness of Galapagos tortoise shells, and about six times the thickness of a chicken egg shell, similar instead to an ostrich egg, which of course is much bigger. Wow. So this is an unusually thick-shelled egg. This is like a cue ball. 
This is a Beelia. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> now, because they were able to identify this egg to a particular group of turtles, it also allowed them to identify previous known turtle eggs that didn't have embryos inside, so they didn't know what kind of turtles they came from. Uh, two clutches in the same region, one of 30 eggs and one of 15 eggs, now seem to be the same group of turtles, which is a very cool retroactive ID. That's awesome. They also point out that since we have some eggs from these turtles and some eggs from another extinct group called adocid turtles, which were aquatic, both of which are thought to be closely related to the ancestors of modern soft-shell turtles. Mm. So looking at the eggs of these groups might tell us about the ancestral state of eggs that eventually led to soft-shell turtles today. Wow. That's all... I mean, it's not surprising that we're getting a ton of info from the first ever embryo Mm -hmm. preserved for this group. But also, wow. But it is a a ton of info. That's so much awesome (laughs) information. I love love everything about that. Also, that's a big land turtle. Like... Yeah. That's that's big for turtles in general, but to be walking around, that's insane. Well, and the eggshell itself... The authors uh, suggest that the thickened eggshell might also be an adaptation to harsher environments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That that might, one way or another, be an adaptation for dealing with drier environments or something like that. That This might just be an extreme group of turtles. Yeah, it's the egg equivalent of a hazmat suit. Right. (laughs) Bunkering down. Wow. So that's really interesting. I'm, I'm extremely excited for, I hope more come out from this, like we can find... More from these turtles. I want to know... Scan all those other eggs. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Very cool. Well, speaking of things with amazing preservation, my first bit of news is about a very well-preserved beetle that has been named after David Attenborough. Oh, aptly. It's cool for two reasons. (laughs) This is research by Frank Thorsten Krell and and Francisco Vitale in Papers in Paleontology, and the article is a press release by Sci News. This is about a beetle fossil, specifically a type of frog-legged leaf beetle, which is, I think that name's just adorable. Great name. Uh, And it was identified by one of the legs, by the curved portion of one of the legs initially, the tibiae section of the beetle leg, allowed them to identify it to the subfamily Sagrinae, which is the frog-legged leaf beetles. This fossil came out of the Green River Formation in Colorado, which is Eocene. So around 40 to 50 million years ago. Yeah, so not super old, but is notable for being only the second fossil of this group found in North America. Oh, cool. So it is a fairly rare fossil group for this area. And while they are rare in the fossil record for our country here, they are not found here today. Uh, They are not found in North America. Uh, According to the article, there are two extant species of this group that are both tropical South America. Okay. The other very notable thing is that it is extremely well-preserved, which is not super common for beetles, at least beetles of this variety, because beetles can often be very delicate once they've died. They break apart quite easily. This is the beetle. Like, they have pictures in the article. It's just a beetle. (laughs) There it is. Green River Formation is famous for a lot of very well-preserved fossils. Yes. So while we typically would find, like, a wing case or a leg of various other beetles, this one has basically the entire animal. Yeah, this is pressed into the sediment like you'd find a fossil leaf. Yes. Or a really nice fish. 
And the thing that's really awesome here is that it actually it actually preserved the patterning on the beetle. Oh, very cool. So you can see detailed markings of what sort of, uh, not the coloration, but the patterns on the wing cases and exoskeleton of this beetle in really high detail. And as is often the case when we get an amazingly well-preserved something that is rare, it is a new species. <laughs> Not surprising. That's just statistically, that's very likely. Second one from this continent. <laughs> this has been given the name Pulcritudo Attenboroughi. That's a cool name. Which is a good name. Pulcritudo is a cool name. And the quote they, that was in the article for the naming of this said, This fossil, unique in its preservation and beauty, is an apt specimen to honor such a great man. Aw. Right? Sir David Attenborough, of course, the the nature documentary. The voice of <laughs> a lot of your childhood <laughs> nature education. And also does all sorts of great conservation-minded yeah. stuff and yeah. social equality-minded stuff. Great dude. Huge activist. Awesome person. Also I'm, has a bunch of things named after him. Yes. <laughs> this is not the first thing named after David Attenborough. <laughs> Uh, there was, I feel like there was like a moth or something not terribly mm-hmm. long ago named after him. Yeah. Well, it's because if you're a person of this day and age that studies the natural world, you're a yeah. bit of a fan right. uh, fanatic of David yeah. Attenborough. If, if you raise two or three generations of nature fans, yep. then you're going to get some stuff named after you. Whether you want it or not. <laughs> I'm sure he's thrilled. <laughs> the final interesting thing about this beetle is that it's actually fairly similar to one of the existing species today. Uh, which, as mentioned earlier, is sub to subtropical to tropical, right? Which could give us some info of what kind of climate this beetle was living to was living in here in North America at the time. Makes sense for the Eocene. Yep, you'd expect that. Well, a cool find. It's a cool. Not every new species gets the honor of being one of the very first of its kind from an entire part of the world. Yeah, which is very cool. Also. Pulcritudo sounds like the name of a demon. Yes, it does. <laughs> and frog-legged leaf beetle. Is that frog-legged leaf beetle? Yeah. Yep. Sounds like an animal from Avatar. Yeah, it does. Oh, it does. Yeah. <gasps> oh, man. Yeah. It just says bear. <laughs> well, speaking of new species that are one of the first of their kind from a certain part of the world. <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey. I got, no, mine, it's okay, don't, don't worry. Mine is way different. It's much cooler. <laughs> My next bit of news, with no offense to Sir David Attenborough. I was going to say, better be named after Sigourney Weaver. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, man, I don't know if Sigourney Weaver has. We talked a couple of years ago about fossils named after xenomorphs. Yes. I was like, that's that's probably probably (laughs) as close as we've gotten. This bit of news is about a reptile from South America that seems to be the earliest representative of early lepidosaurs. The group that includes lizards and snakes. Wow. So a glimpse, a rare glimpse into the early evolution of that group. Which which is a group that definitely could use <laughs> some more rare glimpses. Yep, yep. This is research by Ricardo Martinez et al. in the journal Nature. And we will link to a press release through Harvard University in phys.org. Reptiles as we know them are split into two major groups. The archosauromorphs which include the archosaurs, which are crocs and birds, along with, you know, all the other dinosaurs and pterosaurs. Early evolution of archosauromorphs is represented by lots and lots of fossils. We have a pretty good picture of the early stages of that group's evolution. The other major group in reptiles is lepidosauromorphs. Pretty good, pretty good. 
which includes the modern Lepidosaurs, which are your squamates, lizards and snakes, and tuataras. Mm-hmm. Plus all the tuataras, diverse ancient relatives, the uh, sphenodontians, the rhynchocephalians, etc. This group, we have very little evidence of their early stages of evolution. Their uh, early examples of Lepidosauromorphs are mostly fragmentary remains, not very complete, mostly come from Europe, and tend to be difficult to identify to figure out exactly where they fit on the family tree, in part because they are fragmentary and not very well preserved. Here, uh, this discovery bucks the trend. This is a well-preserved, three-dimensionally preserved skull, lizard-like, but not a lizard, from the late Triassic of Argentina, about 231 million years old, which is also a new genus and species. It has been named Tetalura alcoberi. It comes from the Ishigualasto Formation, which is famous for early dinosaurs down in Argentina. This lovely skull, they were able to CT scan it and get a a good look at its specific features, run it through a phylogenetic analysis to determine its relationships to other animals, and their analysis suggests that it is a Lepidosauromorph outside of Lepidosaurs proper, so not a lizard or snake, not a Tuatara or its relatives, but an a cousin of the earliest members of those groups. Okay. A basal Lepidosauromorph or a stem Lepidosauromorph or an early Lepidosauromorph, part of the early diversity. This makes it the oldest known early Lepidosauromorph, the most complete, and the first known from South America. Oh, wow. And on top of that, the authors say in the article that this is, to their knowledge, the first and only species that is strongly supported as an early Lepidosauromorph by various phylogenetic analyses. Okay, so yes, it's not a potentially maybe. Right. It is seems pretty solidly. Yes, their analysis says this is indeed an early cousin of the lizard snake tuatara branch of reptile life that's useful indeed it's useful for understanding the features of the early members of these groups and also where they were in the world the skull itself they note a a little unexpectedly has much more in common with the tuatara line than the lizards line Hmm. tuataras are one maybe two species that live today exclusively in new zealand They are not lizards, but they are closely related to lizards. They are the last living representatives of a group that was once much more diverse in the past. The features of the skull look more like tuataras than they look like lizards. And the authors did what what they call a morphospace analysis. So basically comparing the shapes of the skull to a variety of other reptiles. And they found that in terms of just general skull shapes... The new species, Tetalura, groups more similarly with Tuataras and earlier reptiles, whereas squamates, lizards and snakes, are much broader, which suggests that this appearance, this general anatomy that Tuataras have, that this new species have, might be more similar to the ancestral condition, to the earliest ancestors of these groups of reptiles that Tuataras might be a not an exact, they are not the ancestors, but they might have held on more to the ancestral shape, whereas lizards went and diversified into all sorts of crazy shapes. Yeah. 
that, that, that Tuatara has a, a stronger family resemblance. Yes. <laughs> when you go to the exactly. family It looks reunion. like it's grandparents. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that's, well, I like, this is a, an interesting example because when you think of Lepidosaurs, lizards and snakes are the, the extreme majority. Oh, yeah. And, like, that's what you just think of when you think of that side of reptiles. Even though the fossil record is rich on the Tuatara side, it's you still think of those. So it's always interesting to find out that, that just because that's the successful, diverse, widespread group doesn't mean that that was how this lineage started. Yeah, they might be the weird ones. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of weird things, here's something that stuck out to me that you'll enjoy. One of the unique features that they discuss in the paper that this skull sets this skull apart is that its teeth don't fit our normal tooth classification system. Oh? Back in episode 88, we talked about teeth. And we talked about how many animals, including mammals and lots of reptiles, like the crocs and birds and dinosaurs, have fecodont teeth. Their teeth are fit in individual sockets. Whereas lizards and snakes have a condition typically called pleurodont, where the teeth sit sort of on a shelf on the inside part of the jaw. And some have the acrodont condition where the teeth sort of sit on the top of the jawbone and look almost like saw blades. Yeah, because they're just super weird. Uh, This skull does not have any of those. Yes! (laughs) Instead, if I'm understanding the way they described it correctly, it sounds like there's more like a trough in the jaw where the teeth sit, but there's no ridges separating the teeth, like in our jaws. Yeah. Interesting. That there is a wall of bone on either side of the tooth, like we have, but no bone between the tooth sockets, like we have. It's a tooth trench. It's kind of, yeah, it sounds (laughs) like they're describing a tooth trench, and this might be a transitional state from ancestral socketed teeth to the more out-in-the-open teeth that we see in lizards today. That actually makes a lot of sense, because uh, I've seen a, a mini a gator jaw where it, I don't know whether it's just the teeth growing larger in this happening, or if there's a degradation, or if this is just naturally how their sockets tend to behave. I don't quite know enough about the osteology and development of uh, croc and gator teeth, but it will be very often where the walls between the sockets of their teeth are very thin mm-hmm. or incomplete, where they don't actually reach all the way in between the teeth. Right. And so you have this kind of um, beaded trough, you know, where it, it has yeah. little cup sections, but they're not fully separated from each other. Uh, the larger, more prominent teeth have solid sockets, but especially in the back where the teeth are more crammed together, uh, they, they will almost be hard to tell exactly where a tooth should go if you took it out and tried to put it back in yeah so it makes sense that you could eliminate that very easily and then it's just a matter of getting rid of the inner wall yep and now you have exactly normal now you uh, have lizard teeth lizard teeth yeah oh that's so weird and i love it a couple other quick notes that this new species helps us to understand one it's from south america where most of our early lepidosaur morphs are from europe which tells us they were more widespread than we had previously known And it is younger than the oldest known squamates and sphenodontians. It is about 10 million years younger than the fossils that are thought to be the oldest known lizard and tuatara line fossils, which suggests that these early cousins 
lived alongside the early representatives of the true modern lineages for at least several million years. Cool. The last of the ancient version of this group lived alongside the earliest members of the modern versions of this group. Which makes sense. That that's happens a lot of time. There's not usually a clean changing of the guard. Yeah, these from... didn't just give rise one day to the newer ones. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I, I, that, I'm, this is another one where I'm excited to see how this continues to change our understanding because I assume there'll be more and more research to be done on this one. Very neat. Yeah, find more fossils in South America. Well, speaking of uh, the topic for this episode, uh-huh. my final bit of news is about Tyrannosaur brain cases. Brains. Brains. That's, that's the last, this is two consecutive episodes condensed into one news article. <laughs> yep. So get ready. It's going to be, a, it's, this news is going to be twice as long as a normal news. <laughs> this research is by Mark Lowen in the Canada Journal of Earth Sciences, and the article is by Isaac Schultz in Gizmodo. So during the late Cretaceous, here in North America, things were different than they are now because it was split down the middle. Yep, the Western Interior Seaway, episode 71, split North America effectively into two land masses. Which had a huge effect on the animals living on North America because you now had two separate regions, which meant that the dinosaurs living there became very distinct from one another, who was living and what they were like. So understanding exactly the pattern of evolution on this landmass is of interest. And this research looked at the Tyrannosaurs... Episode 120. ...to look into the effect of this on their evolution. This specifically is looking at a recent Tyrannosaurid from Utah, Despletosaurus, which is an older member of the Tyrannosaurids, dating back to like 75 million years old. The Tyrannosaurids, as we discussed last episode... The group that includes all of the Tyrannosaurs you've heard of. Yep. T-Rex, Albertosaurus, Gorgosaurus, and so on. The famous ones. This study CT scanned the brain cases of two of these dinosaurs to be able to reconstruct a rough idea of what the brain looked like. Hey, guess what? We're going to mention that later. Ooh, foreshadowing. This technique's pretty handy when we're talking about brains. Now we're doing the MCU thing. <laughs> One of the skulls was found in Alberta, or near Alberta, Canada, uh, the Red Deer River in 1921, while the other came from Milk River in Utah much more recently. But geologically, these two individuals would have been separated by about 2 million years. Okay. So we're getting a slight time difference look at this group. Now, very often, scanning the brain can give us info about how this animal lived or interacted with its environment, which, once again, we will discuss... This one, though, was looking at variation. It was wanting to see, are these brain cases similar or different? And they found that they were actually more different than is expected, Hmm. would be expected for Tyrannosaurids. This is partially because they didn't expect this level of difference within this group, but also they didn't expect this much variation in the brain, which is often thought to be kind of a conservative organ that it doesn't change rapidly and quickly because it's very, very crucial. Right. So you would think that it should be very similar. And here they found more difference than they thought they would. So this may be indicating that there's more variation species to species within this group, and even within a species than we expected. And there seems to be potentially enough difference to separate these two as different species. Interesting. 
Now, this research, as far as I can tell, did not suggest names, but that potentially the brain is different enough to separate them, which could be a new way to start parsing out Tyrannosaurid specimens. Yeah, using anatomical features of the interior of the brain case to separate species would be a very cool update. And the differences between the two skulls also went past the brain into the sinus cavities and the air passageways of the skull. Those also revealed some significant differences. So looking at the internal structures throughout the face could be a new way, evidently, that could be useful for Tyrannosaurids to identify species. Interesting. It makes me immediately think that this information will be handy not only for clarifying relationships, but avoiding confusion in relationships. It makes me think, and we have discussed this before, of the ways that young versus old individuals have confused identifications in the past, where you don't expect that much variation from juvenile to adult, so you get confused by there being that much difference and that you would end up naming more species than you need to. I could easily see a situation where someone might not have expected the interior structures of the skull to look to be so variable. Mm -hmm. And that knowing that might be useful for future scientists to not accidentally identify two different skulls as being different species or something because we recognize that there is an expected level of variation. Yes. So I'm, I'm, I hope to hear more of these kinds of stuff. I've been saying that with a lot of these news because they've all been, they're all cool, intriguing things that I want to hear or see used more. And with that, we can wrap up our news and get ready to discuss things like brain cases, but more specifically, the thing inside the brain case. Let's talk about what a brain is after this break. Narf! <laughs> I want you all to think of literally anything. The thing doing that thinking for you (laughs) is known as the brain. (laughs) The brain is part of your central nervous system. The brain and our spinal cord, the nerves running down our backbones, are our central nervous system. The brain is attached to that spinal cord at the very top inside our skull. Protected by the outer wall of the command center. As far as the brain goes, it is a decent size. It, it on average, for an adult human, is one to one, 1.2 to 1.4 kilograms, or 2.5 to just over 3 pounds, which is not nothing. Not, especially for an organ in our body. Makes up about 2% of our total body weight. Which is ridiculous. But then it gets less impressive when we bring up the fact that it's 60% fat. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Not what you, well, you want it to be made of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the remaining portion of it is water, protein, carbohydrates, salt, stuff like that. It is not a muscle, though we like to call it that very often. The main building blocks of your brain, though, are a particular kind of cell called neurons. These are the nerve cells. Neuron, they're throughout your body. You got nerve cells outside the brain. These are what let you sense things and communicate to the rest of the body. These send electrical signals from nerve cell to nerve cell, and they are built in three parts. The stomas, which are the round cell body, 
Yeah, that's where the the sort of important stuff is. Yep, that's the actual cell portion of the neuron and does like the calculating for it. The axon, which is the antenna effectively, it's like a wire coming off that then will connect with other neurons to send and transmit signals. And then myelin, which coats the axon and protects it. Yeah, it's a sheath. It's like the, the, the rubber around a wire. Yes. And where the axons and stomas meet, the neurons meet each other, we call those synapses. This is where information jumps from one nerve cell to another. There are other things in our brains. We have lots of blood vessels running through the brain. Naturally. There are also glial cells, which are the non-neuron cells of the brain, which can do a number of jobs in the brain, mostly maintaining the homeostasis, the perfect environment for our brain, maintaining it. The nerve cells make up the gray and white matter of our brain. Gray matter is something that gets thrown around when talking about our brain very often, Mm -hmm. but there's also the white matter. I assume that when you're carving up the brain at Thanksgiving dinner, some people want the gray matter Mm -hmm. and some people want the white matter. Absolutely. I'm a gray matter person. Gotcha. The gray matter is made out of the somas of the neurons, while the white matter is made out of the axons. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So the bodies of the cells versus the transmitting antennae of the cells. Exactly. And when you're looking at different parts of our central nervous system, the gray and white matter are in different locations. The brain is gray on the outside, white on the inside. Oh. While the spinal cord is flipped. Gray on the inside, white on the outside. With the antennae reaching out into other parts. Exactly. And I know that in some cases, those antennae, the axons, can be particularly long. Yes. The nerve cells can get very long as they're transmitting uh, information across relatively long distances in our body. Precisely. Now, this gray matter is quote-unquote, the interesting part of the brain, because it's the part that's doing the thinking. The somas are the processors. They are what controls and processes information. And so that gray matter made out of those somas is what allows our brain to do its thinking and processing and control your body. There are a lot of parts of the brain. Yep. We aren't going to go into detail on all of them. I hope not. Quick overview. (laughs) Google parts of the brain yes. uh, for your quiz. Yes. <laughs> this, this podcast is not a stand-in for your <laughs> biology studying. We're not going to give you all the information. No, we're, the, we're the study guy that's printed in black and white and has all the, the, the color shading messed up. <laughs> yeah. uh, so don't, don't use this for your quiz. Go this look it up. This podcast should not be regarded as medical advice. <laughs> now, and also, this is our brain. Uh, yep. We're, we're going to take a walk through our own heads, a roadmap of your mind. Not every animal is going to look like this. In fact, most don't. Yeah, our brains are unusual among animals. But we know the most about our brains because, A, we are very egotistically uh, super interested in our own brains, and uh, B, they're really easy to access. Yep. We had a lot of them kicking I, around. I, I've had one most of my life. I never leave home without mine. <laughs> there are three main sections to the human brain. The brainstem, the cerebellum, and the cerebrum. The brainstem, which includes the midbrain, the pons, and the medulla, or medulla oblongata. Yeah, that's why alligators are so ornery. <laughs> yep. That's some croc facts for you. <laughs> this is where the brain connects to the spinal cord. The brainstem, like the stem of a rose, it is where our brain connects to the rest of the body. The midbrain, or the mesencephalon, does a number of jobs, but it's important for things like hearing and movement and 
calculating our response to the environment. The pawns controls a lot of our head activities, like crying, or tear production at least, chewing, blinking, hearing, and facial expressions. Okay. Whilst the medulla oblongata is where the brainstem meets the spinal cord, that very specific base. It is one of the most important parts, because without this, you die for sure. This regulates your heart rhythm, your breathing, your blood flow, and O2 and CO2 levels, your oxygen and carbon dioxide. Kind of a big deal. If something happens to this, <laughs> your life support system yep. <laughs> crashes. That's the generator that's keeping all of the support yep. systems up. For all of you who played Battlefront 2, this is when you go inside the ship and blow up the life support. That's the medulla oblongata. It also controls a lot of our reflex things like sneezing, and there's actually a specific center for vomiting. Huh. This does a that lot of the makes passive a lot of things. Yeah. Interesting. This section of the brain you will sometimes see referred to as our reptile brain. Yeah, the lizard brain. The lizard brain. Which, as catchy as that term is, is based off a faulty understanding of how our brain is organized. Yeah. This term was coined in 1957 by Paul McLean, which he proposed as part of his triune brain concept, which held that the different sections of our brain relate to... Their complexity relates to when they were evolved in animal evolution and match to different animal groups. Right. With the brain stem being the most basal and similar to reptile brains. A section we'll get to in a little bit called the limbic system being the mammal section. And then the thinking part of our brain being the human section. Right. Which A, is not how our brain is organized. That's not how we got the different parts. Nope. And B, studies on reptile brains have actually found very similar structures between mammal and reptile brains. Right. It's not that we just have a bunch of extra parts that they're missing. It's that our brains are structured relatively similarly with different arrangements of things, different... Obviously, some parts of our brain are expanded. Yes. And there are parts that we have that they lack. And there are things that they don't have a perfect one-to-one with our brain. But there are sections that function very similarly throughout the brain. So our brain's not as different than a reptile's, and it's not just inherently superior. We don't have a reptile brain at the base right? <laughs> running, you know, helping run our superior brain. Which is how it's often portrayed, that the re- the reptile brain is this sort... It, it, to, to me, I often hear it used as related to a misunderstanding of evolution, mm-hmm. that... These are the stages of our evolution that we come from distant reptilian primitive ancestry that became advanced mammals that became, you know, the pinnacle of all life. Uh, Humanity with the idea of the reptile brain being your primitive impulses and your sort of savage bestial nature, which is not really how evolution works and also not how the brain works. Yep, wrong. The next section of our brain, the cerebellum, is at the back of the brain underneath it. And it is, as they describe, which I just love, about fist-sized. Yep, I've heard that about it. Yep. It's often called the little brain. This handles a number of behaviors and processes like motion, posture, and balance. Like a lot of our movement is found back there. The equilibrium for our body is handled in this section, at least in part. This is also where a lot of learning comes into play. Learning complicated tasks like playing an instrument or a, you know, a skilled task is going to happen in your cerebellum. And you will sometimes see it grouped with the pons and the medulla oblongata as the hindbrain. Gotcha. I have heard that. Yeah. So 
Some split it up by the brainstem, cerebellum, and cerebrum. Others split it up as the hind, mid, and forebrain. Mm-hmm. Depends on which way you look at it, but it's just different groupings of the same parts. It depends on how you slice the brain. Yep. And then we get to the cerebrum, the forebrain. This is what typically, when you hear discussions of brain, it's going to be parts of the cerebrum. This is the majority. It's the largest part of the brain. This is where we get into that gray matter. Like This is typically when they're talking about gray matter, they're talking about your cerebrum. And it is also sectioned into parts. The thalamus is located here above the hypothalamus, which we'll get to in just a moment, and deals with our senses. Sight, touch, smell, hearing, taste. This is what tells the rest of the brain what we're sensing. But then by far the most exciting part of the cerebrum is the cerebral cortex. This is what has those lobes of the brain that deal with our different thinking. This is where thinking happens, which is an abstract concept in and of itself. Yep. This is the part... Of the fat in your head. <laughs> that. <laughs> where thoughts come from. That is letting me do what I'm doing right now. <laughs> is where thinking and speaking and problem solving happens. Yeah, analyzing, interpreting, and responding to the world around us in complex ways. Yes. This is also where we get into those famous folds. Oh, yeah. Of the brain. The surface of the cerebral cortex is folded. Convolutions is what they'll often be called. With the ridges, gyri, and these folds, sulci, this helps increase surface area and increase the amount of gray matter we can fit into the area of our brain. And in total, accounts for about half the weight of the brain. It is sectioned down the middle into two hemispheres. Left and a right. Which are connected by the corpus callosum, a C-shaped, fairly large structure that lets the one half communicate with the other half so that they are holding hands, even though they are separated. And while the two halves do function differently, and there's the famous thing of the right hemisphere controlling the left side of our musculature and the Mm -hmm. left side controlling the right side, there's also the idea that you can be left-brained or right-brained, and that if you are more analytical or mathematical in your thinking, you're left-brained, and if you're more artistic or creative, you're right-brained. This, once again, is based off of old understandings. Yeah, that's not true. That's not true. Left brain, right brain, dominance. Dominance of a hemisphere is one of those very prominent pop ideas that isn't really a scientific fact about the brain. It's also, it has that kitschiness of being a fun, like, personality quiz type thing. Yep. Of you get to identify yourself that way. When studies have done thorough analyses of our brain's functioning activity, we found no dominance in a person right or left. Yeah. There are different things handled by the different sides of the brain. Like there are certain functions and attributes that are more controlled on the right side than on the left side. But the idea that you are like a right-brained person and thus you are logical versus artistic or or such is not really how it, it works. It's, they do different jobs overall. But they are connected, so they are not functioning separately, and we've found no evidence that you favor one. Right. There's a lot of misconceptions out there about brains. Oh, yeah. The cerebral cortex is split into lobes. Each hemisphere is split into four sections, the frontal, parietal, temporal, and occipital lobes. Which are the same words we use to describe portions of the top of the skull. Yep. And they align with those sections pretty well. The frontal lobe, which is the largest section up front, is where a lot of our, what we typically think of the brain doing stuff, where your 
personality is housed. A lot of your personality characteristics, decision-making. So the things that make you who you are are very heavily in this frontal lobe. It communicates a lot with the limbic system, which we will discuss in just a bit, but that handles a lot of our emotional information Mm -hmm. so that our thinking and our emotions can line up and communicate with one another. The temporal lobe, which is at the sides of the brain, just around your temple, is good for short-term memory, speech, and musical rhythm is one of the things they mentioned here. Yeah, the things a section of the brain does do not all align with each other. They're so weird. The parietal lobe, which is the midsection behind the frontal, this handles a lot of our senses. It processes a lot of those inf- the, the information from those. It also interprets pain across our body. And I love this. Whilst the temporal lobe was, good, was handling speech, this handles understanding speech. <laughs> Once again, they're not all lined up. It's not like one section handles all the talking, one section handles all the moving. It's spread in kind of weird ways. And the occipital lobe, last but not least, at the back of your skull, controls vision. Yep, that's where you'd expect it to be. Yep. (laughs) I've often heard that described as one of the reasons why if you bump the back of your head, your vision might go out for a second. I don't actually know how really related that is to the part of the brain you're injuring. Yep. I've heard that. That could be another one of those popular yeah. Uh, descriptions, but I have heard that said, which is how I remember that vision is controlled in the back of the head. Same. Yep. I heard that that story <laughs> Gavin told on, <laughs> yep. on Rooster Teeth, and that's what I think of. And then there are some deeper structures inside the brain that handle other jobs that our body's needing them to do. This is where your pituitary gland, the master gland that basically tells the rest of your glands what to do, <laughs> is in your brain behind the ridge of your nose. The hypothalamus, related to the thalamus, above your pituitary gland, regulates a lot of our passive things. Like, it it is what controls how much we do. A lot of things like breathing, our heart, our lungs. It's what causes your heart to speed up in situations. It's also how we regulate body temperature, our hunger, and sleep cycles. And then we get to the limbic system, which is the emotions section of the brain. As it was put in one of the... uh, articles I read, it's what makes you happy and sad. (laughs) This has the amygdala, which houses things like our brain's reward system. You know, that, that things that makes you feel good in certain situations, our stress, our fight and flight response of fighting or running in a situation. It also communicates with the hypothalamus. It's what makes your heart race in certain emotional situations. Uh You have the hippocampus, which is described as being shaped like a seahorse. Yep. Hence the name. This also has roles in memory and learning. The pineal gland, which is what responds to light and dark and is what tells you when to get sleepy. Your circadian rhythm is here. And then we have the ventricles of the brain, which are spaces, four open areas in the brain, which manufacture the cerebrospinal fluid, which is a watery-like substance that surrounds and runs through the brain, cushioning it and protecting it, but also removing impurities and delivering nutrients where it needs to be. And then finally, your brain coverings. Your brain has a few layers of protective coverings called meninges. The outer layer, the duramata, is thick and tough and is a protective outer layer with space underneath it for blood flow, veins and nerves to move underneath it. The next layer is the arachnoid mater, named because it's a web-like covering. Cool. 
of connective tissues, below which is the cerebrospinal fluid, and then finally, the pia mater, which is a thin layer that hugs the surface of the brain and is where the veins and arteries run through. Now, there's more detail that we could go into. There's the nerves of the brain, the blood flow to the brain, but that is a general roadmap of your human brain and some of the things that the different parts do. Which brings us to a point that you may have noticed while discussing the parts of the brain that at no point did I come to a part and say, and this does nothing. (laughs) I mentioned that because there is another popular, very wrong brain myth out there, which is that we only use 10% of our brain. Yeah. This is a myth that has been around for a while. Many people think it probably has been around since the early 1900s. 1908, it is often attributed to William James, a psychologist and philosopher who wrote a book called Energies of Men, where they are quoted saying we only use a portion of our mental potential, which has then been very poorly requoted as we only (laughs) use a percentage of our brain. Right. And then at some point, 10% got slapped onto it, probably because it sounded catchy. Right. Which is an idea that has been taken with much enthusiasm, both by like pop psychology, sort of, I hear it a lot in especially like motivational speaking and things like that. Like, oh, you have more potential than you're using. And also by movie producers who love to use this as an opportunity to create a wonder drug that activates the rest of your brain. Yep. There are many reasons we know this is not true. A... It was never thought to be true when it was first brought up. Like, mm-hmm. it was never presented as scientific fact when it first got caught on. But also, there's been so many studies of our brain's activity. And we found that even during very mundane things like walking or talking or sleeping, most of the brain is active. Yeah. We've never found a section that is just purely inactive. So we've not found that dormant 90%. And the more sobering, but Very, very telling bit of evidence that it's fake is that there's no part of the brain you can injure without consequences. Yeah. And lots of really fascinating research has been done on what happens when different portions of the brain become injured. Yeah. And indeed, what doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, Our brain is both very vulnerable and more resilient than you'd expect in some cases. When I heard, I can't, I think it was uh, one video talking about this myth. That said one of the, because we don't have a for sure this is where it definitely started. Like a quote that is the first quote saying it. As is often the case. I've heard some that attribute it to early on when we first, when some doctor noticed that a person with a missing portion of their brain was still functioning. And that that sparked the idea of, oh, maybe we don't need all of it. Like maybe it's not all as important as we thought. Mm. And that that might have been part of what led to this. But just because you're functioning with it doesn't mean there's not side effects. Right. Yeah, it's a pervasive myth. And we talked a bit about it here because it's Will's most frustrating myth (laughs) about the brain. If I had done the brains episode, we would have spent extra time talking about the left brain, right brain thing. Because that's the one that bugs me. (laughs) (laughs) Although I did uh, not too, too long ago, my therapist recommended a book to me that was talking about sort of how our brains process emotion and stuff. And the book, I listened to it on audiobook, and it kept using the term reptile brain Mm -hmm. and every time i was like "Mm, (laughs) twitch unhappy about this yep (laughs) now we just spent a lot of time talking about our brains because as we mentioned earlier we know a lot about it because we think quite highly of it which is also why we spent a lot of time here (laughs) our brains think highly of themselves yes (laughs) 
our brains are pretty proud, pretty cool brains if if we do say so ourselves. If they do think so themselves. <laughs> we think we're pretty cool, therefore we are. <laughs> I mean, the logic is sound. <laughs> but there's more brains than ours. Every, most animals have brains or something semi-equivalent to a brain, which we will go into a bit more later on. There's a lot of different kinds of brains out there. And they don't all look like ours. Most of them, in fact, look very different. Now, as is usual, we cannot go through the diversity of brains. Because, oh boy. There's a lot of brains out there. Oh my goodness. But there are some interesting ways that brains can be different. There is a regular trend between brain size and its computation ability. Bigger brain, more neurons, more thinking ability. But more important than overall size is relative size. Right. The size of the brain compared to your body. Yeah, this there, there's a term for this. Encephalization quotient. Exactly. It's the number that compares your brain size to your body size. And this quotient has been found much more consistently to determine the level of complexity of behavior created by that brain than the overall size. One source I found gave a really great way to explain that. If you had two animals with same size brains, the smaller animal is probably going to behave more, quote-unquote, intelligently. Mm -hmm. That because its brain's bigger compared to its body, it's going to show more complex, more cognitive behavior, thinking and problem-solving. Right. Bigger animals are not just automatically more complex in their behavior just because they have bigger brains. Yep, because now they have more body for that brain to control. Mm -hmm. So they have more muscles and more mass. So the brain has more that it's having to do, even though it might be massive. Another thing that you'll see with brains is instead of just increasing in size, increasing in complexity of their structure. Right. All those ridges and folds and all those different sections. Absolutely. This is a great way to increase the amount of gray matter in your brain without making its size much bigger. We call these foldy brains gyroencephalic, while we call the smoother brains lysencephalic. And most mammals have folds on their brains. That's pretty common. But there are... Plenty of animals that have smooth brains. The koala is the famous mammal example that has very few ridges, very few folds. This leads lots of people to pointing that to be why they seem slow-witted. <laughs> but one thing I found pointed out, they also have a really bad diet that's very low energy. Mm. Uh, which could be why they have a less complicated brain. Yeah, less fuel uh, and nutrition to fuel it. Because brains take up lots of energy. Yeah, they do. I've seen descriptions of how much energy our brain, especially humans have just preposterously huge brains. Our encephalization quotient is off the charts. Yep. Our brains are enormous for our body size. The only other animal that matches us is dolphins. Yeah. And that's it. And these brains take a ton of energy to power. Which is another reason why it's convenient not to just continually make your brain bigger, but to make it more complex and efficient. Right. At different jobs. And also, one of the answers to the question you might be wondering is why doesn't every animal end up with a complex brain if, obviously, you're being, quote, smarter mm -hmm. or more com behaviorally complex? Yeah, it, if you don't need it, if you can get by without all that complexity, that's a lot of energy you're saving. That's an expensive tool to have, a very large, complex brain. If I can make do with a Ford Focus instead of a sports car, I'm going to save a lot on gas. <laughs> like, that's basically what we're dealing with here. But you will see animals who have specialized their brains in different ways than ours. 
Now, we have a huge cerebral cortex for lots of thinking. For all that thinking we do. But our other portions of our brain are underdeveloped, quote unquote, less impressive than other animals relatively because they're doing jobs better than us that need that part of the brain. The cerebellum is a common one of these since it handles a lot of things with balance. You'll see things like cats having a much larger cerebellum more prominent cerebellum than like dogs because they're jumping around and landing from high spaces. They're much more agile now that they can control their balance. The or- the olfactory bulb, which handles a lot of our smelling, ours is puny and pathetic. Yep. We are not good smellers. Whilst in other animals, the one example they used was a mouse. It's so prominent, it sticks out in front of the frontal cortex. <laughs> <laughs> it goes in front of the front brain. Because they're smelling so well and so often and it's so important. You'll also see this, like the olfactory bulb is really notable in lots of things with good sense of smell. Uh, We mentioned that last episode when we were talking about tyrannosaurs. We sure did. You can also see different parts of the brain specialized for different behaviors. A cool example of that is the bird's brain. The bird's cerebellum has a central region especially adapted for flight. You know, focused on flight. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Whilst most mammal cerebellums are expanded side to side, not in that central region. Huh. Bats are expanded side to side and in the central region. Cool. (laughs) Bird mammals. Mammals doing their best impressions of birds. Now, all of that info is still, though, very much focusing on vertebrates. Yep. Bony animals. Backboned animals. Animals who keep their brain in a skull. Yes, exactly. Invertebrates, still many do have brains... Uh, There are ones without, Mm -hmm. but a lot of inverts still have brains, though their brains are often very different from ours. Uh, Some do not have what people would consider a true brain. They have what are called ganglia. Right. Collections of nerve cells. Exactly. A mass of cells, but not shaped into a complicated brain structure. So like a, a committee of nerve cells. Right. Not an organ, so to speak. And so sometimes you'll see things that say they don't have brains, they have ganglia. Others will just call that their brain. Right, their version of brain. Because it's doing the same job. Especially when we look at things like insects, who can have very complex behavior, some of which rivaling the complexity of human civilization, mm-hmm. when you get to ants and bees and such. Uh, episode 111. But who have much smaller, more structurally simplistic brains. So even though their brains are you know, not as fancy as ours, so mm-hmm. to speak, That doesn't necessarily just limit their behavior down to stupid behavior. Brains aren't one-to-one like that. But you see a lot of extreme diversity that can often be species-specific and group-specific among insects. So that the brain of a dragonfly may not look at all like the brain of a butterfly. Butterflies have a big portion of the brain dedicated to the antennae, whilst dragonflies have almost no section since they're not using their antennae for sensing the world, their brain is dedicated to eyesight. That would have been my guess. (laughs) Yep. Big ol' eyes. In those groups that show the ridiculous social behavior, they show a a structure in the center of the brain called the mushroom body that is greatly enlarged in eusocial insects, ants and bees and so forth. Huh. Which is very likely for that complex behavior and having to keep track of all the interactions and the nest and yeah, yeah. coordination. Mm-hmm. And that That's where society is in the brain. So these are the apes of insects. Yeah. <laughs> in that regard. Ooh. You also have 
mini inverts where it is not centralized at the head. Uh, insects, they do have a ganglia in the head, but then they also have separate ganglias in the other sections of their body that effectively behave on their own, but mm -hmm. communicate with one another. Right. So the one in the head takes in senses and tells the one with the legs what to do, but the one with the legs is controlling the legs on its own. Right. Which is why famously, you know, a cockroach can get its head knocked off and still run around and interact with the world and such. Exactly. I have heard it said, although this might be apocryphal, that if a cockroach loses its head, the reason it dies is because it starves. Yes, that's what I've always heard. Mm -hmm. This is also very true for things like spiders, which the brain, the nerves are spread throughout the body. I saw one source. Uh, this was just a fact list, so I don't know that this is super true, but it cited that up to 80% of their body can be taken up by portions of the brain. Huh. So it's not just in one section, it's spread throughout. Mm -hmm. You see a similar thing with cephalopods that have their circular donut brain that surrounds their esophagus, which is the always people like to throw out the fun fact that if they eat something too big, they'll give themselves brain damage. Yep. This is octopus and squid and cuttlefish. Mm -hmm. But they also have tons of neuron bundles down the arms. Yep. So the arms are doing part of that processing for the central brain. And this is, once again, an example of while they do not have a folded gray matter-esque brain, it's very ganglia-like. They're one of the smartest animals that mm -hmm. we, when it comes to problem solving and how we think of smart, uh, smart like us yeah. animals, <laughs> <laughs> and by far the most cognitively complex invertebrate by a wide margin. So even though a brain may not look like what we think of as a brain, that doesn't mean it's a simplistic or bad brain. Yeah. It occurs to me that we should also address the popular myth of dinosaurs having an extra brain in their hips. Oh, the butt brain. The butt brain. This is an idea. I don't actually have information in front of me of where that came from, but I believe there was an old suggestion at some point that dinosaurs, especially like sauropods and stegosaurs and stuff, were too big for a brain to control the whole body. <laughs> too big for one brain to handle. That they would have needed a second command center a, a cluster of nerves or even another brain to control the back half of the body which well, we don't have any evidence that that's true there's no supporting research or fossil evidence that has shown that to be at all the case no. also whales exist yes so like no there's no evidence for a even like a bundle like a central like a ganglion back there mm -hmm. as far as we know they functioned just like any other animal. And indeed, I, I do think that that harkens to one of the uh, uh, common misleading notions about dinosaurs is that they were somehow these different strange creatures. Yeah, or that they were a primitive right. run of animals. Yeah, they're just animals. So yep. di every dinosaur had a brain in its head, just like we do, yeah. just like most of our animals. This is why, like, in Pacific Rim, they mention them having a second brain, and I think they oh, yeah. also, in one of the Godzilla <laughs> movies, they attack his brain in the hip with a weapon. Yeah. Like this, this idea has perpetuated to on screen movie monsters. Yeah. Dinosaurs did not have two brains. Nope. Sorry. It just, isn't uh, except for the inevitable occasional two headed dinosaur <laughs> being born as a, as a deformed <laughs> newborn. Yes. They, those would have had two brains. Absolutely. That's right. This also seems like a good opportunity to briefly touch on the concept of intelligence. Yes, I agree. Because I think that going over the diversity of brains is a really good way to demonstrate that there are all sorts of different ways for a brain or brain-like thing to exist and to function. 
and to give rise to complex behavior. It obviously, if you listen to our podcast or explore nature documentaries and such, you're aware that you're probably familiar with the fact that a lot of animals we typically think of as being small-brained, primitive creatures have very complex behavior, like turtles and Mm -hmm. crocodilians and frogs and stuff. We tend to think that a brain equates to intelligence, which isn't the case. Brains don't necessarily equate to behavior or complexity or intelligence. And it's really important to make the point that intelligence isn't really a thing. No, that's a word we use to describe ourselves. And when we describe it in other things, we're comparing them to us. Right. There's not really a way to quantify or measure how smart an animal is, how smart a species is. Honestly, there isn't really a way to quantify how smart a human being is. Yeah, an individual. IQ tests from everything I've ever heard about them are incredibly problematic, misleading, and often targeted (laughs) at minority or lower class groups. IQ has, the idea of IQ has a very racist history. Yes. Uh, I have seen some people defend the idea that some aspects of the way we study IQ can be useful for understanding the way that we sort of interact with the world and the way we understand things. But as a general concept, the idea that you can slap a number on how, quote, smart a person is or how smart a particular animal is, is is wrong and, like you said, very problematic. It tends to be highly biased in favor of whoever created the test. Well, yeah, like, if I'm creating an IQ test, I know how smart I am. So right, yeah, at, I get the highest scores. I've at least <laughs> got to be midline, like, at, at minimum. So everyone should at least be able to meet me if they want to be average. Which is why we humans tend to regard other species as not being nearly as intelligent, because we're using our own basis of intelligence. And it is why IQ tests, historically have gotten the best results from relatively wealthy white people because that's who makes the tests. Yep, that's who it's designed (laughs) for. So yeah, it's always tricky. The idea of, quote, intelligence is a very, very complex topic that does not necessarily equate one-to-one with what kind of brain you have. It's why a lot of times you'll see research on brains talk about behavioral complexity Mm -hmm. versus intelligence because that is something we can say, well, this animal has more ways of responding to a situation than this animal does. Their behavior is more complex. There's more options. There's more if, you know, if thens than this mm-hmm. situations. They have a more complex way of interacting with their environment than, say, an ant that won't walk over a chalk line because it smells funny. Right. Like, that is not saying one's smart, one's dumb. One just has more ways of interacting which we typically consider smart because we have lots of ways of interacting with our environment. Yep. (laughs) This comes up a lot when we talk about, you know, brain cases in the fossil record. I've had people ask, oh, yo, how big was its brain? Was it really smart? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, we don't know because that's not really how it works. Yes. We can study different aspects of behavior and different aspects of lifestyle through the brain. It's a very complex topic. Yes. I also always like to point out that there's things these dumb animals can do better with their brains than we can do. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> that just archer fish who can 
calculate the refraction of light through <laughs> the surface can snipe a bug off a leaf with a jet of water. Yeah. I can't do that. No. I Ar- can't do that with a squirt gun. Archer fish IQ tests are like, you humans really got to step up your game. Right? How many bugs did you hit? <laughs> None. <laughs> Idiots. What are you doing? Driving a car and making spreadsheets? What use is that? Yeah. <laughs> Not helpful to anybody. Who's that going to feed? <laughs> now, this is by no means an accurate overview of the diversity of brains. No, there's a lot of brains. <laughs> but we are out of time for talking about that. <laughs> now that we've talked a bit about what brains are like in things alive today, which are very easy to study because, you know, you just open them up. Yeah, you take it right out. Pop the lid off. How do we study brains that are no longer here because brains are very, very, very squishy? Yeah. How do we learn about fossil brains? And how do we then understand how we got brains in the first place? We'll talk about that after the break. We've mentioned many a time that when it comes to fossilization, the typical trend is hard parts fossilize, soft parts don't. Bones, teeth, seeds, wood, lots of fossils. Muscle, skin, feathers, hair typically don't make it. And when we talk about soft parts, it doesn't get much softer than the brain. It's a pretty squishy organ. It's so squishy. So the idea of brains fossilizing is typically not even mentioned or considered just because it, it barely happens. But it does happen. There are instances where we have preserved soft tissue and the soft tissue's the brain. It's not common. It's not often. But it has happened. So there are moments in the fossil record where we get a direct look at the brain of some animal and can study brain evolution and fossil brains that way. But it's not the common way. Now, the thing I found most interesting about this is when you look up fossilized brains, you get them from places I didn't expect. Some very old ones. We have Cambrian brains. Mm -hmm. Brains more than 500 million years old. One of these brains that will come up if you look it up, is Carigmacula, which is a, a cousin of the euothropods and the anomalocarids. So, so exoskeleton yeah. uh, things, cousins of the ancestors of crustaceans and insects. There is a specimen that had a preserved brain in its head that seemed to go to the eyes and front appendages. Yeah, these are often when we find stuff like this, it is uh, the, the typical Cambrian well-preserved stuff like the Burgess Shale. Mm-hmm. Episode 89, where you'll have an impression of the fossil and some soft tissue might be preserved as like a film or a sometimes it looks like an ink blot. Yes. That is where the tissue was. And then you'll see a special, a, a section in the middle that, at least from the pictures I saw, is often white in mm. a lot of them. That is the nerves of the brain. Now, these are also going to be the ganglia, not foldy brains like we have. Right. I think there was one of these in our news not ter- not too long ago. Uh, and it's worth noting that oftentimes these are disputed. Yes. Like, oftentimes there will be, especially in the cases where it's a little uh, less well-preserved of a fossil, there will be discussion back and forth of what actually are we seeing? Yep. How much is this representative of the original nervous tissue versus how much are we seeing artifacts of preservation? Yeah. Is this the brain? Is this the space around the brain? Is this something that clomped onto where the brain would be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to be sure, but we do get fossil evidence that sure does seem brain-like. Uh, I don't remember if this was the one we mentioned, but there's a horseshoe crab brain 
uh, that was discovered fairly recently. That could be it. I think that might be it. 300 million year old horseshoe crab brain from the Carboniferous, an extinct species. Euproops dane from the Maison Creek Formation. Oh, episode 110. Which once again has what seems to be brain structure preserved. The rocks split perfectly to reveal it. Nice. Uh, they said if it had split any other way, they might not have been able to see it, and it would have hidden the brain and the rest of the rock. Nice. And from the picture, it has kind of like a palm leaf shape yeah, to it, it. Extensions going out to the parts of the body where it might have connected to. Mm-hmm. Not a round brain like we think of ours, but a, a much more ganglia. A web, a network. Which is very similar to today's horseshoe crab brains, which probably means that... 300 million years ago, horseshoe crabs were pretty much being horseshoe crabs behaviorally. Mm-hmm. That if it's shaped almost the exact same way, you probably were just acting like horseshoe crabs, uh, which is what we always attribute to them. But now we've got brain evidence. Right. <laughs> and there is at least one dinosaur brain. Yeah, I think we talked about this in the news. Uh, this was a couple of years ago at this point. Yes, exactly. This is a dinosaur skull, some relative of Iguanodon, uh, about 130 million years old, Cretaceous, well-preserved brain case. They went in, looked at it to scan it to get an idea, and they found the surface of the brain case seemed to preserve mineralized structures of the surface of the brain. Mm-hmm. So not the whole brain. We don't have a fossilized brain chunk. Right. But scraps of tissue from around the edges of the case. I guess we should specify that when we say brain case... We mean the part of the skull that contains the brain. Yes. It is the the bones around hugging and protecting the brain. So this makes me think of that it would have been like the, the leftover food scraps at the edge of the bowl. <laughs> it's like when you have a cake box <laughs> yeah. and there's icing all around the inside of the cake. That's yeah. what we found yeah, here. We get fossilized brain icing. We have no cake, right. but there was cake here and we have evidence of what kind of cake. Little bits of cake. This was discovered in 2016, which was... V- at that time, the first, and as far as I'm aware, still the only evidence of fossilized dinosaur brain. And I know this is another one where there has been lots of discussion about exactly what and how much original brain material is represented here. Yes. The the original reports described it as fibrous material, which means it's most likely part of the, the meninges, the coverings of the brain, potentially not the actual gray matter of the brain. Right. The casing, the, the sausage casing of yes. the brain. <laughs> Less so the sausage itself. We have a lot of food metaphors. Yep, yep. <laughs> I'm, we're hungry, can you tell? The sausage casing on the cake. <laughs> but there was enough there to compare it to other brains, and it seems to be very similar, potentially in structure, to like today's crocodilian brains. Ooh. And they think that the reason that this happened at all is because of a very unusual fossilization process that this dinosaur probably died and was either in or then was submerged in an acidic pond, a stagnant pond that effectively pickled the brain. Right. Allowing the outside edge to mineralize before the rest of it wasted away anyway. So a very specific situation to allow us to get the outer edges of the covering of the brain. Right. So we don't get brains very often. I think, I don't actually know off the top of my head if there has ever been any research done on these, but I'm sure like frozen carcasses preserve brain tissue. Yeah. Like we find frozen mammoths and stuff. And for sure things like, you know, human remains like bog bodies and stuff, you could probably get into the brains. Although I don't know that a lot of research has been done on tissues like that. I haven't heard about it. So, which is kind of interesting. It makes me wonder if it's not preserved in a way that would be useful yeah or if it would be hard to get to without 
damaging. Yeah. I remember doing dissections in class where they're like, hey, if you can dissect the frog's brain, extra credit. Yeah. And then just pureeing <laughs> the brain, trying to get in there. Good. <laughs> just getting in there. I'm so sorry, little buddy. Well, what? You weren't using it. <laughs> so by far the most common way of studying ancient brains is either looking at brains today of mm-hmm. closely related animals. And then interpreting what the ancient history, the shared evolutionary history would have been like. Or looking at the brain case and what shape it is in and interpreting the lobes and sections of the brain from that. Yeah, looking at the shape of the brain's container. Mm-hmm. Finding skulls like we talked about in the news this episode and interpreting the shape of the brain from the space in the skull where the brain sat. Yeah. This is not a perfect one-to-one definite this is what the shape was. There are some animals that do not take up their full brain case. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of lizards are known for their brain not taking up the entire cavity of the brain case. So the shape there will give you an idea, but not the actual shape of the brain. So it's not always perfect, but some animals, it is a very tight fit and you'll get a very good idea of what their brain looked like. This is also where we can get into a lot of the interpreting what you were doing with that brain. As mentioned earlier with things like the different lobes, the size of them often indicates you were dedicating more energy or more computation to that behavior. If your olfactory bulb's huge, you were smelling a lot. If your visual centers are huge, you were looking at a lot. We talked about this last episode with interpretations of tyrannosaur senses that they had a good sense of smell, for example, based on the shape of the brain case. And this is where we can look at things like evolutionary trends. One small early dinosaur, Burialesti Schultze, they scanned the brain to get a look at it. A very tiny brain, about the same mass as a pea, so itty bitty. But it's part of the lineage that leads to the long-necked dinosaurs. This is a small, like, fox-sized, two-legged, probably predator, that then eventually gives rise to, or is related to, the ancestors of giant plant-eating long necks. We did talk about this in the news once. Yeah. I remember this name. And we were able to, they were able to see that the olfactory section for Buriolestes was much smaller than the olfactory section in sauropods, which means it wasn't using its sense of smell as critically as our long necks were to mm-hmm. find food, most likely. So we are able to do a decent bit of research on ancient brains, even without having ancient brains. Right. Brain cases is how we interpret a lot of this behavior sensory stuff. It's been done a lot for dinosaurs. Yep. It's been done a bunch for our own ancestors and cousins. Uh, A lot of the time when we're studying ancient hominins, we will look at size and shape of the brain case uh, to relate it to our own species. And another fun thing about brain cases is that you can also end up with a particular type of fossil remnant called an endocast which is if the brain case gets filled with sediment and then the skull disappears or gets broken or something, you end up with a chunk of hardened sediment that has taken on the shape of its container. Yes. So you have a piece of hardened dirt, the shape of the brain of the thing that it formed inside the skull. Sometimes we will make endocasts artificially. So at the Gray Fossil site, there was a student here a little while ago who would scan the skulls of fossils, and then create digital models of the shape inside the brain case to create a digital endocast, which we could then 3D print into a physical endocast. So at my office, in the shelves at my office at the museum, I have a few taper brains yeah. from our fossil tapers. Now, it, it does, is worth saying that to use the, the endocast of the brain case to study the brain, you need a well-preserved skull. Yes. Like... 
if your skull's all crushed, that you're probably not going to get enough detail to really study the brain of that animal. Right. Which, unfortunately, is usually the case with skulls. Yes. So, even still, we are limited quite a bit. So, studying brains is not easy in the fossil record, but then, you know, what is? Uh, <laughs> it's not impossible. <laughs> but we are able to study. So, we do have a rough idea of the evolutionary history of various brains in the animal kingdom. So let's talk a little bit about how we think brains came to be and how they came to look the ways that they variously do and how we got our brain the way it is. As with most things, it starts in the ocean. Of course. That's when we see the first signs of the stuff we'll need to make brains. Right, before the brains crawled up out of the ocean. <laughs> before they started floating out. I mean, well, the bra brains built vessels around themselves and then <laughs> commanded those vessels to carry them out of the ocean onto the land. <laughs> the big brains am winning again. Yeah, and then eventually uh, commanded the descendants of those vessels to make a podcast talking about how brains came to be. <laughs> I feel so used. <laughs> now, single-celled organisms do not have brains. No. Shocker. I'm sorry to break that to you, but they don't. Brains are very much an animal thing. Yes, a multicellular organism thing. You need to have multiple cells to put together to make a brain. Yep. So single-celled organisms don't have brains, but they have a lot of the building parts for some of the ways the brain communicates. Whilst we don't see these things having brains, they do still need to sense and react to their environment, take in chemicals and signals, and respond accordingly to get food or avoid hazardous situations and a lot of these basal mechanisms you know chemical mechanisms are seen in our brains today like it's the same sort of chemical reactions and responses going on and you know, so though we aren't seeing a brain yet our building blocks were there from basically the beginning and this is a good time to point out that while we often think about nerve cells communicating with electrical signals mm -hmm. and they do they also communicate very crucially with chemical signals. Absolutely. Like those synapses, often it is chemical signals carrying the information from one electrical signal to the next. And we can see those processes in very simple animals like sponges. Porifera are very simple organisms that filter water through channels in their body. They don't have a nervous system. They don't have a brain but they still communicate across that body. Most sponges communicate with chemicals. They can close or open those channels that filter the water, and they'll do it in response to chemicals released by other cells as it distributes through the water. So it's a very slow, long way of long-distance communication between cells. So not nerves, not a system, but a way to communicate cross-body. So that first step of chemical communication... Things like the glass sponge actually do use electrical signals to communicate, but they don't have a network. They just send electrical pulse across the whole body. Ooh. When one cell releases the electrical impulse, it triggers the ones next to it to continue that impulse and release their own until a wave travels and they can communicate, you know, shutting the channels or opening them across the whole body really quickly. Cool. So not a nervous system nearly like we would imagine it, but communication between the different cells of the body. So a, a communal assortment of cells all working together. Exactly. So even at the, the base of our animal group, we have these styles of communication going on, just not in the organized way we think of it in ourselves. Now, while we always attribute 
electrical signaling to nerve cells. Cells are able to produce electrical potential just in general by pumping in or out ions, which are atoms with more or less electrons, which is the negatively charged part of an atom. Which creates electrical differentials by pumping by pumping ions of a certain charge in one direction, you create a different charge on both sides of the wall. Yeah, the universe craves balance. So if you have a lot of negative over here and a lot of positive over here, that's what causes electrical movement. Right. So that they can become balanced, as all things should be. <laughs> so cells can create that imbalance just being a cell, just by moving those channels. So it's easy to think that it wouldn't take much for cells to start specializing with that, to specialize that ion exchange for signaling when we already have unspecialized things like glass sponges doing it. And indeed, that's what nerve cells do. So we can see where the origin of nerve cells come from. We also see the building blocks for nerve cells and synapses in some very simple organisms. Uh, cyanoflagellates, which are free little swimming unicellular organisms, but very closely related to animals, have many of the parts needed for electrical and chemical signaling, and they seem very similar to the ones our cells use. And a lot of these signaling and chemical communications between cells are things that many of our cells do even outside of our nervous system. Yes. Like cells in our body need to be able to communicate with each other. The nervous system specializes in certain signals, particularly over distance across the body. Exactly. It's what lets us coordinate our body so well because we can communicate from the far reaches of it Quickly and precisely. But it seems that the building blocks for that have been there at the ancestry of animalia. Animals had these building blocks from the beginning. So it looks like our nerve cells probably are ancestral to all animals, not just popping up here and there. So even though our brains and nervous systems are different, us and a jellyfish are working with the same building blocks. More or less, which we'll get into in a little bit. As a quick side note on the like efficient communication over distance... Things like yeast have been shown to have certain proteins that are used in synapses for reacting to their environment. It's not a nerve system, but it's yeast using what uh, I saw one uh, source describe as a protosynapse. Ooh. Yeah, so so you can have levels of innervation. Like, you can step your way up to actually having nerves yeah. and still be functional. I know there's also been a lot of research on slime molds and the way that they communicate within the body and network of the slime mold. Absolutely. So once it is not a, you either have a way to communicate with your whole body or you don't there, you can have parts of it and still be using those to do a similar job. Yeah. You can have a sort of a nervous system without having a nervous system. Now, once we have nerve cells, you know, specialized communication cells, the earliest animals to have them probably did not have a coordinated network of nerves. You know, it's not like phone lines running through a city. It would have been a mesh, more like a net of nerves across the body, which they call a nerve net. This is what we see in cnidarians, jellyfish and sea anemones. These have nerves across their body. Their body can respond to stimuli, but they can't tell where it came from directly. Like when the one arm of a sea star touches something, the other arms aren't all aware of it as keenly as that one is, because they don't have a network. They just have nerves throughout their body. So you're starting to react to the environment, but it's not coordinated. Now, the evolution of the nerve net is 
unclear, like when it showed up or how it showed up. Uh, we see nerve nets in Cnidarians, but we also see it in Tenophores, which are the comb jellies, which aren't actually jellies. They're a different group, but they also have a similar nerve net system. So while we have comb jellies and our true jellies with nerve nets, sponges, who are also one of those earliest groups, do not have nerve nets. And depending on exactly the model, the branching may have our two nerve nets splitting before sponges splits out. Yeah, some some recent evidence has suggested that comb jellies are an earlier branch on the family tree. And if that's true, then that would mean that comb jellies and jellyfish are more distant than we may have thought, yet having that same uh, similar nerve structure. Which means one of two scenarios, either Anomalia ancestrally had a nerve net and sponges lost it, mm-hmm. or it evolved twice separately in jellies and comb jellies. I believe both because sponges are weird. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's one. this is one of those situations of like, why would you lose a nerve net? Uh, we'll get into reducing brains is actually something that happens quite often. Yep. <laughs> Eventually... We would have started to see groups of neurons, you know, ganglia-like, Ganglia. start to form in different parts of the body, potentially. Most organisms that have these ganglia do have it focused in the head, in the front region where the censoring, sensory organs and structures are. Makes sense. It is hypothesized that it is like that this sort of arrangement is likely ancestral to all bilatrian animals. Right. If you have a head... It's a good place to put a bunch of nerves. Which means the you bilatrian, the hypothetical ancestor to this group, likely had a brainish thing in its headish thing. (laughs) (laughs) But that's hypothetical. We don't actually know what that organism is or that it has that. But all of its descendants have a brainish thing in their headish thing. So it's likely ancestral to all of us that face forward. (laughs) Yeah, all of us with the bilaterally (laughs) symmetrical bodies. But once again, there is weirdness. Acorn worms uh, lack this hub, this neural hub. They don't have it structured this way. So once again, either it evolved separately or was lost. So it is unclear exactly how we, you know, exactly what the earliest stages of us organizing our nerves in a clump toward the head is. But once the bilatrians have it, we can start specializing it into a brain. Now we've got it focused, you know, a focus of nerves in one section. We can start turning it into a structure that will become a brain. This brings us into our vertebrates, us. Yep, animals with bones, which is the group, as we mentioned before, that has brains as we think of them. Yes. Right, whereas we said a lot of invertebrates have that more spread out version or something more like what we might call a ganglion, not quite a brain brain. Vertebrate animals, fish and all their descendants tend to have a brain in the head. Exactly. Now, vertebrates is one section of chordata, which is where we start to see the first evidences of brainish things. Chordates don't all have bones, but they all have a series of features that at least show up at some point in the life cycle of its members. One of the key ones being a nerve cord that's supported by a stiff notochord running down the length of the animal. So we have a centralized nerve system. Yeah, a stem. A a spinal cord, kind of. Yes, the building blocks for a spinal cord, the the foundation. 
but that does not necessarily mean you have a brain. What we start to see is specializations of the sections. We can see examples of this in the modern non-vertebrate chordates, things like the lancelet or amphioxus, and the tunicates, uh, sea squirts and salps. The lancelet, which is often used as an example of what the earliest fishy-like things might have looked like, it, it's kind of fish-shaped, but it's it's pointed on both ends, so it doesn't have like a very clear immediate, that's definitely the head. Mm -hmm. These are swimming jawless filter feeders. They've got that nerve cord, and it runs right to the front of the animal. It doesn't stop at the base of a head like ours does. It just runs right up front and looks pretty simple, just like a nerve cord at a glance. But there are some slight specializations, differentiations of sections. And it does seem to have a very simple forebrain and hindbrain, sec two-sectioned brain-ish, front-handling vision, back-handling swimming. Fascinating. Yeah. So not only do we have the start of a brain structure, but it is specializing tasks. Yeah, cool. Which I would assume is half the reason to have a structured brain so that you can divvy up tasks into different areas. So you can delegate. That's the key to good leadership. <laughs> That's right. You have different departments. Now, the tunicates are a little bit different. Sea squirts and salps are typically little kind of barrel shaped or like... Yeah, they're like a bag. Yeah, like a bag filter feeders that are most of the time sedentary attached to a rock just filtering yeah. they look like a sponge or an anemone or something like that exactly and when they're in that form no brain no nerve cord but as babies as larvae they swim around and while they're swimming they have a nerve cord and simple brain and simple eyes and stuff while they swim around like tadpoles but the spine brain, eyes are absorbed, resorbed into the body and used to make other structures when they become adults. Yeah. The tunicates start out as kind of like a fish and then become this totally different thing, whereas our ancestral lineage kept being the fish thing. Yes, I, I saw one thing. <laughs> uh, uh, I can't remember which source it was, but that quoted as, our ancestors kept swimming. Yep. <laughs> and... Therefore, maintained that mobile body that needed a nerve cord and brain. Yep, the brains and the eyes and the whole thing. This is also a good example of what I mentioned earlier. Of losing a brain is not as detrimental a act as it might seem on the surface. If your adult lifestyle is sitting on the seafloor and filter feeding, what do you need a complex brain for? What's there to think about? Works just fine. So, ancestral vertebrates kept swimming, kept being mobile, needing those brains, eyes, and spinal cords. And about 500 million years ago, there's evidence that there was a genome duplication in the ancestry of vertebrates. The Our genetics were duplicated, looks like twice. Okay. Which suddenly gave us a plethora of new building blocks to mutate and adapt and evolve with. Cool. This is a, a genome duplication is something that we see happen uh, not infrequently uh, across evolution. We see it still happening today. It's very commonly discussed in plants, like just copying, making an extra copy of your entire genetic layout happens in plants quite a bit. So you just have double the DNA with a lot of redundancies. Absolutely. Uh, I've seen it compared to getting a Lego set and then having an extra Lego set that now you can build whatever crazy thing you want. Yep. Because you've got all these extra pieces suddenly. This is also about the same time that we see a 
sudden increase in the neural complexity of vertebrates. Now, we talked about ways you can, quote-unquote, upgrade your brain without just making it bigger. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, it was assumed that one of the key ways to do that is to add more nerves. Okay. More densely packed nerves. Makes sense. More, more numbers. More computing power. Exactly. This was very much based off the idea that we're all working with basically the same nerves, so the only way to improve them is to have more of them. Right. Recent research has shown that that may not be true. What? It actually seems that there are differences in the proteins, the amount of proteins and variety of proteins used in the neurons of various groups. Uh. So you can have more complex synapses in different neurons so you can upgrade the neuron in complexity. Interesting. It sounds like you could also then end up with a more diverse assortment of neurons. It makes me think of uh, uh, the way our eyes work, mm -hmm. that it's not just about having more cells for detecting light, but if you have different types of cells that are specialized, for example, in detecting different colors, you have more complex vision, even without necessarily having to add more cells to have more acute vision. Absolutely. Uh, research into this looked at various proteins in mammal synapses and found that only about half of those are found in invertebrate species. And 25% of them are found in single-celled, non-innerviated animals. <laughs> so we have a greater diversity of communication tools. Yes. So our, our nerves have more proteins to be doing their job with Based off the research, it seems like there is likely two waves of increased sophistication, increased complexity of the synapse proteins. One, at the beginning of multicellular organisms, like not quite a billion years ago or whatnot. And then another, about 500 million years ago, in vertebrates, about the same time we see that genome duplication. Oh, and which is also a time, I think it's worth pointing out, near the tail end of the Cambrian explosion. Exactly. So... It looks like we got these, we suddenly got a bunch of new genes to play with and started improving the amount of proteins we use for our synapses. Cool. So now we have a more diverse array of raw material and options for expanding that nervous system. Exactly. And so after this point, when we start seeing things like the first fish come around, it looks like a lot of the core structures of the brain would have already been getting in place and in place in early vertebrate evolution. Things like our amygdala, the limbic system, the basal ganglia, which controls a lot of the movements for these structures of the brain. I do believe that typically, though, fish cerebellums are underdeveloped because they're not having to worry about gravity. Oh, you have to be very well balanced as <laughs> yep. a fish. Nope. <laughs> up and down are concepts, not, not important. And as we move forward and get into... That 360 million years ago, as we get tetrapods coming on land, we yeah. can see a transition of amphibian brains are more similar to fish brains than reptile brains mm -hmm. in their structure. Whilst reptile brains are still very similar to an amphibian brain, the cerebrum and cerebellum have been increased. So you can see this very stepwise logical progression toward, you know, not that we are the logical conclusion. Right. But we can see how the brains become more and more like what we built our brain off of mm -hmm. as vertebrates continue on and move on to land eventually. 
it's interesting because it sounds like the evolution of brains, like is the case for the evolution of a lot of anatomy, is involves a lot of increasing specialization. Yes. And we have a nerve system. Now we are specializing certain regions and then we are diversifying and adjusting and expanding those regions in different ways. Well, it makes me think a lot about our discussion on the evolution of the eye and yeah. that each of the building blocks have a use. And as you continue to collect them and to put them together in new ways, you start getting a, you get new tools each time that allow for new behaviors. Yeah. That was episode 68. And then about 200 million years ago, we get the earliest mammals. Oh, hey, we know them. Hey. And this is where we see a new section of the brain unique to mammals that is not found in fish, amphibians, and reptiles. The neocortex. This is a section of the cerebral cortex that is unique to mammalia. It handles a lot of the things that the cerebral cortex is known for. You know, processing, you know, a, a complex information motor controls, spatial awareness, and stuff like that. But it is a uniquely mammal section. Cool. So, so just ours. Yep. And it seems like it was there from basically the beginning. Which is very neat. Uh, CT scans of a couple early mammals, Hadrocodium and Morganucodon, who are Triassic-Jurassic. Horticodium is early Jurassic. Morganucodon is late Triassic into the Jurassic. So we're talking about 200 million-ish years old mammals right at the toward the beginning and scans of their skulls seem to show that they would have had a neocortex. So this is a uniquely mammal structure that we've had since we've been mammals, which is fascinating to me. Scans of these skulls also show a couple of interesting things like a large olfactory bulb for good smelling. Makes sense. And regions of the neocortex that seem to be specialized for tactile sensation. Oh. Uh, specifically, which could very well be for sensing touch through hair and stuff, you know, whiskers and things like that. Oh, interesting. Which, good smell, good sense of touch, both line up with the idea that early mammals were very likely nocturnal. Yeah. Uh, so. Feeling around and smelling around in the dark. I love that we're able to learn about the earliest brains of mammals and we're seeing these things fairly consistently. Cool. Presumably, not long after this, the bird lineage was develop starting to develop a lot of those unique sections of the brain that are adapted for flight, like we talked about earlier. Yes, absolutely. And then as we continue forward with mammals, you know, we're going to focus a little bit here. We're kind of on track to us at, for this next bit of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Mammals in general show a trend of increasing brain size just over time, over the rest of the Mesozoic and past it. After the end of the Mesozoic, 65 million years ago, we start to see the earliest ancestors of primates who very likely took the trees and may be part of what started to cause their increase in brain size, particularly to them. Mm -hmm. you know, mammals in general were increasing brain sizes, but we see our ancestors notably increasing, which is a trend, as you may guess, all the way up until you get to us. Oh, yeah. It's thought that this could be due to the arboreal lifestyle and needing to be able to navigate through trees. It also could be that if ancestors of primates were social like today's primates, like the insects we mentioned, social structures require brain power to keep track of. Mm -hmm. So that could have also put pressure on selection for a larger, more cognitive brain. We also see signs of higher interconnectedness within these sections of the brain in these groups, eventually leading to our ancestors. Around 14 million years ago in Africa, we see the group of apes that would give rise to 
us and other apes today, orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees. And this is where a question comes in because the brain of the ancestor is not that different from the other great apes, mm -hmm. whilst we are way different. Our brains are super weird. So this brings in the question of why. Why did our brain, why did our ancestral line get so weird and different compared to all the other great apes? For a long time, it was proposed that it was moving out of the jungle into the grasslands. Right. I and, remember hearing that. Yep. That we moved environments. We started walking upright. And that this new shift in behavior required a new tool set of brain power to be able to survive. But it seems fossil evidence doesn't support that. Uh, that that our ancestors became bipedal a good bit before the brains got notably big. Mm. So it doesn't seem like they sync up with us getting a big brain and standing up at the same time. A separate hypothesis has to do with our bite muscles, which is not what you might expect <laughs> to play into when we talk about brain size. But the muscles we use to close and bite down with our jaw put forces on the skull. Right. And the skull needs to be strong enough to handle those forces. In other great apes and primates, they have fairly strong bites and they have reinforced skulls to handle that, which can restrict the amount of space you can dedicate to a large brain. About two and a half million years ago, there's evidence that a mutation in our genes weakened that jaw muscle hmm. and weakened our bite, which would have lessened the forces on our brain case on our top of the skull which also sync up pretty well with when we see some of the marked increases in brain size. And we do, as as humans compared to other apes, have pretty weak jaws. Yes. Our, our bite, our is, bite is not anything to write home about. <laughs> no. Now, we're in hominids at this point, so we're not in humans. Mm -hmm. But in our ancestral line, we see a decrease in bite force and an increase in brain size that seem to correlate pretty well. Yeah. So this probably wouldn't have been a pressure for increasing brains, but it may have been a lifted restriction that allowed other pressures to have that effect on the size of our brains. Exactly. There are other things that might have pushed for larger brains or allowed for larger brains. The development of tools and using that to expand our diet mm -hmm. could very well have fueled, like literally fueled the growth of larger <laughs> brains because protein, getting meat and hunting with tools or things you know, to get d other foods could have helped nourish this very energy- yeah, high energy requiring organ. Yeah. Also, if you are becoming more dependent on tool use, that is another selective pressure for having more complex behavior and understanding to use more tools. As our ancestors, if their lifestyle became dependent on tools, now there's a pressure there to get better at using tools. Exactly. So th the mere fact of the brain becoming larger and more behaviorally complex could drive it to want to become behaviorally more complex. Yes. We often think, it's easy to think, our brains got bigger so we could then, we, we were able to use more tools, but it can just as easily be a feedback. Yes, exactly. Things like fire also, using fire to cook meals mm -hmm. and get more nutrition out of them. More brain fuel. And so there are mathematical models that support this cultural genetic feedback loop of our brains getting bigger, it's shifting our culture, that putting more pressure on bigger brains to be more successful at this new culture, which advances the culture, and you didn't have a pressure to just swell our brains up to the big old baby heads. Yeah. I would imagine that that cultural pressure could extend not only to tool use, but also societal structure 
and language. Exactly, yes. The sort of behaviorally, behaviorally complex things that we do. And so if, now that's, we don't know for sure that's what happened to us mm-hmm. in our lineage, but it does seem that by about 300,000 years ago, when you get Homo sapiens, our brain was in the size range of today's people. Which is to say, just enormous. So big. Like, thinking about a human skull. And we, uh, for more details on this part of the story, episode 18, part <laughs> B, goes into a lot of details of sort of our more recent evolution. Human skulls are so weird compared to other animal skulls. We've got these flat faces, these tiny front parts of the mouth, of the face with the jaws and such, and then just giant alien heads. Oh yeah, if you think about the greys from X-Files or just, you know, uh, Close Cult- Encounters. Culture. Yeah, that giant headed, flat, you know, tiny faced yeah. alien. Huge, huge eye, tiny mouth, that's giant what, head. That's what we look like to all the rest of the animals. <laughs> that's us. We're just projecting. <laughs> so we had reached, if not the average brain size of today, a in range of today's brain size by 300,000 years ago. And it seems we had stopped growing our brain 200,000 years ago. Okay. Our brain was human brain for the last couple hundred thousand years. And at that point, like you said, this is Homo sapiens. Yep. And we're not alone. All of our close relatives, obviously throughout our lineage, the other Homo species, Homo erectus and Homo heidelbergensis and the Neanderthals and presumably the Denisovans, once we find better specimens of those. (laughs) They're going to have just giant balloon heads. (laughs) Are all similarly large-brained to us. Some a little smaller, some a little larger on average. Neanderthals, on average, have larger brain cases than we do. Absolutely. And it does lead us to a a question that might be asked, why did we stop? Yeah. Like, why didn't we just, why aren't we grays? Why don't we have these swollen, (laughs) you know, cartoonishly big heads? Uh, And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, it may just not have been necessary. Yep. You know, our brains may have been good enough for what we were doing, so we didn't need it to keep getting bigger. Like we said, it's expensive to keep growing. That's the other big thing. Big brains take lots of energy. Roughly like a fifth of what you eat is being dedicated to your brain. Yeah, that nutrition, that energy you're producing is going to powering the thing that controls the rest of your body. So it could have been that if our brains kept getting bigger, we could have seen diminishing returns. That Mm -hmm. we're getting a bigger brain, but it's costing more than it's actually giving us benefits. We've peaked. Yeah, we're we're as smart as we need to be. We could get smarter, but it's not going to help us more than it's going to cost us. Sure. Also, it occurs to me that, uh, as as you've described it, it's only been 200,000 years. Yeah. It could very well be we're just in a lull. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, we, I, I, I suspect that this has not been a linear increase, that there have been sort of bursts of change over time. So, yeah, it could be that we just have been in a slow period. And you're absolutely correct. The pattern of our brain getting bigger has not been a straightforward one. In fact, to take a step back from just looking at us, we're not the only big-brained mammals. No. There are a number of mammals that have high encephalization quotients. Big brains for their bodies. Us, the other great apes, elephants are way up there, toothed whales, and specifically the delphinids, the dolphins. Those five groups have the highest quotient for brain-to-body size of mammals specifically, and each, interestingly, shows a different way of getting those big brains. Oh, interesting. Historically. Elephants show the most straightforward. 
over their evolutionary history, they started getting big, as they are famous for. Yep. And while they were growing their bodies, brain size and body size correlate. So if you get your body big, your brain's going to get bigger with it, typically. And they just increase the brain size, the growth rate, slightly more than the body size rate. Okay. So both got big together, brain getting big a little bit faster than the body, so they ended up with a relatively large brain to body size. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. You just put a little more gas on the brain growth than the body growth. Whales showed a two-step method of getting big brains. The first one occurred in ancestral whales, the whale ancestors, where we saw a similar thing to the elephants. They were growing their body size and growing the brain a little bit faster growing them together. Then we see in toothed whales a reversal of that pattern where they're decreasing both brain and body size, but they're decreasing the body size faster than the brain size decreasing. Mm, So you end up with a still relatively larger brain. Yes. The dolphins and their, their relatives show a third step where they are decreasing body size while increasing brain size. Whoa. They and us are the only ones that have ever been shown to do that. Cool. To get a bigger brain while shrinking your body. Well, you got to redirect that fuel somewhere. So listen, if we're going to keep getting bigger and bigger brains, we're going to have to cut down on some of these extraneous things like jaws and tails. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And when we look at the great apes, for great apes in general, we see a trend of body size and brain size growing together. And then in hominins, we see that dolphin pattern of us physically getting smaller while our brains is or while He's our brains are relatively growing swelling <laughs> and only us and dolphins have ever done that and we are the two at the top of the encephalization quotient yeah well because we cheated we shrunk our bodies yeah you're not supposed to move the gauges in opposite directions you're supposed to at least be moving them together we were definitely using a mod funnily enough we actually see a very similar parallel pattern in birds also famously big brained yes some birds are on a similar relative size, you know, relative to body size, quotient as primates. The two most notable are parrots and corvids, which both have very large brains for their body, but showed different ways of getting there. Parrots did it by shrinking their body size and keeping their brain the size it was, while corvids, crows and ravens, did the elephant thing of growing brain and body and just growing the brain faster. Huh. Mm -hmm. Different approaches to achieving a relatively large brain. Absolutely. And in all those groups, we do see a lot of complex behavior. Those are all the groups that we humans like to point at and go, those are smart. That sure is smart. Look at it doing what we would do in that situation. They act a lot like us. (laughs) I would also take the windshield wipers off that car. I respect how you remind me of me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I wanted to end this discussion on a kind of funny note. You mentioned that we may just be in a lull for our brain size growth. Right. The research shows the opposite. (laughs) In the last 10 to 15,000 years, it seems that our brain has been shrinking. Oh, we overshot. That we have reduced our brain size on average by 3 to 4% of its mass. Oh. So not a lot. Right. But just a tiny bit. It is slightly smaller right now than it was 10,000 years ago. Interesting. Our skulls seem to show. Why this is, we don't fully know. Right. But there's a lot of really interesting ideas. I bet there are. (laughs) The most straightforward one is that we've gotten a little bit smaller. In the last 10,000 years, as things have warmed up, we've gotten a little bit smaller, which could be to the increased temperature. Body mass is really good for maintaining body heat when it's cold. You don't need as much when it's not as cold. Okay. So that that could be it. 
that might be, we have seen that humans have gotten smaller and it could be correlating with that. It's also true that smaller people means smaller waists, which would mean for females giving birth, it would be beneficial to have smaller headed babies, smaller brains so that you don't have to fit them through the birth canal with giant heads and small hips. There's also some genetic evidence that our brains may have gotten more efficient Ah. with processing data and doesn't need to be as big because we're running we're running with a better processor. Right, we're downscaling. We're we're uh, miniaturizing. Yeah, I don't need two graphics card because I've got the newest one, so I it is better and faster and stronger. So it may be that we've made better uses of our space. It's also worth pointing out that a smaller brain takes less energy. Yep. So there's an energy cost benefit. There have been some who have suggested that larger brains may be not as good at certain tasks like rapid processing. Because you're having longer processing distances between the sections of the brain. Right, right. Signals are having to travel farther. Right, that compactness again. Exactly. There's suggestions that our way of life may have reduced the size. Yeah, 10,000 to 15,000 years ago is around the time we started doing civilization. Exactly. We've effectively, in our behavior, domesticated ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're not having to hunt regularly for food. We're not having to avoid predators. And when we look at domestic animals we domesticate to have similar lifestyles along with us, they on average have smaller brains than the non-domesticated relatives. So we may have domesticated ourselves and gotten rid of the need to avoid predators and seek food constantly and Mm -hmm. find shelter on the regular. Interesting. Now, we should, of course, point out that it's very easy to see a trend like this and go off the rails making all sorts of hypotheses about our shrinking brains and the dumbing down of society and all that sort of stuff. It wouldn't surprise me if there have been time periods in the past of our evolution where it has fluctuated. Oh, yeah. Like growing and shrinking and growing some more later on. And I'm sure that there are thousands of factors that contribute to the size and shape of brains. Well, and, and while it may be easy to look at this as a dumbing down of humankind, it can also be looked at as a less need for individual complexity because now we're relying on each other. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't need to survive on my own. I can survive as a team. We're replacing our internal neural networks with a hive. With an external one. That's another point that's made. We don't store all our information in our head anymore. Oh, man. As our our brains will shrink as the internet grows, as our libraries expand. We write it down. We record it. So we don't need to remember all of it. So the need to process every bit of human information is not necessary. So we can rely on the civilization we've created to support whatever cognitive abilities we might have been reducing. Interesting. There are also those who suggest the idiocracy approach (laughs) that more intelligent people, more learned people is usually what that actually means, Mm -hmm. uh, are having fewer children on average so that (laughs) uh, intelligence and income level no longer correlates with number of babies. Right. Uh, Which... I've seen that pop up even on fairly like good sources for brain information. They will then suggest that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, that's back to what we said before. The shape and structure of your brain does not directly correlate to intelligence and intelligence is not really a measurable thing Mm -mm. in the way that we often want it to be. And that's one point that I really liked uh, that I saw. There was a couple of sources that discussed this and a few of them made the point that you also shouldn't necessarily be nervous about our brain shrinking because our nutrition and medical technology and educational infrastructure 
have also increased immensely. So you're living longer, you're living more healthful, healthy, you know, lifestyle, and you're being taught mm-hmm. better and more correct information than we have ever had, ideally. Right. So the nurture of our lifestyles may be counteracting any of the nature of our brain that we might be quote unquote losing. Yeah. So just because our brains are shrinking doesn't mean we're getting dumber. Doesn't mean we're losing stuff the same way you might think. Right. We're, and as is always the case, as long as we have enough brain to live the lives we're living, we're fine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If this episode has demonstrated anything, hopefully it has demonstrated that there are many ways to do a brain. Yes. There are many ways to have a brain and to use it for the life that you need. Absolutely. And that brings us to a pretty good end cap, I think, of our with our shrinking brains. Yeah. That's the brain. It's it's complex. There's so much more to be discussed because there's so many brains. Yep. If we skipped an aspect of the brain that you really wished we had covered, please let us know. If there's a, a fact about our brain or a particular animal brain that we did not touch on, tell us. Just share it on our pages or... Tell us you want to hear us talk about it. Yeah. And it can be another episode. Tweet about it and embarrass us. And yes. We'll, uh, <laughs> Call us out publicly. <laughs> That'll do it. It gets response. Proof right here. <laughs> this one time. <laughs> oh, man. This is how we invite a bunch of people to be jerks to us oh, on the internet. No. We will not respond to you if no. you're a jerk to us no. on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but before we wrap up the episode, we have one last stop on our agenda, which is we have a patron question. We sure do. Our patrons who we will shout the names out of, also have the ability to ask us questions that we will answer in episode, like this one coming up here. Today's patron question comes from CJ, who asks, what are the big differences between a cat and a nimravid? Ooh. Now we should remind everybody, we did discuss this in episode 93 about cats. Yup. Cats, felids, are the group that includes cats, Cats. lions, tigers, panthers, bobcats, snow leopards, etc. felids are the felines. And saber-toothed cats, but there are groups that are cat-like that are not cats. Nimravids are an earlier branching group of carnivores, carnivorous mammals, that are shaped a lot like cats, probably lived a lot like cats, and many of them even had saber teeth, like our saber-toothed cats, but were not cats. Yeah, they're often called the false saber-toothed. Yes. These were around for a, a decent amount of time from, like, the middle Eocene to late Miocene, so they were doing well here in North America and Eurasia, and at a glance would have looked very, very cat-like, uh, but do have some key differences. You know, one, evolutionarily, they are not with cats. So yeah, that, they are a different branch of the mammal family tree. Even if they were identical, they still wouldn't be cats. <laughs> but physically, there are some things that tell them apart. As is so fitting for this episode, their brain case is evidently different. Uh, I saw it described that felids typically have more elongated brain cases, while... Nimravids have shorter, you know, more condensed brain cases. Okay. Their auditory bulla, which encase the inner ear, are notably different. I didn't understand all of the descriptions of what made them different because I don't know that (laughs) anatomy well enough. Right, but shaped and structured differently, which might correlate to differences in the way that they are hearing from cats. So a notably different inner ear. And then this is the part I found most interesting. Their feet. Cats walk on their toes. Yeah, cats are digitigrade. So they're uh, the, the heel slash ankle and the wrist are elevated up off the ground as they walk, like dogs. Yeah, this is what gives dogs and cats the back leg that zigzag 
that we think of for that double-jointed leg. Nimravids were very likely plantigrade, which is flat-footed. Yeah, like us. And bears. Heel on the ground, like us and bears and raccoons are like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, yeah, you are walking with your whole foot on the ground. And from what what it sounded like, it's either they were walking with the whole foot down or more of it down. Right, not fully plantigrade or digitigrade. Exactly. So they would have been, they would have looked more flat-footed than a cat. Yeah. They would have walked differently, which is a pretty cool thing to know. It's like a badger cat. It's weird. I love it. Yeah. Thanks, CJ. Good question. Yeah. Chance to talk about cool groups. And with that, we can wrap up this beefy episode about our big old brains. Less big than they were. (laughs) (laughs) This has been a fun discussion. And hey, like we said before, if you have any suggestions for topics you want to hear in the future, let us know. Reach out to us on the social medias or by email or check out the blog on our blog site. Every episode that gets up, there is a blog post afterwards with extra pictures and links for more info. Yep. Also, another shout out to our patrons. Uh, a special shout out this episode because our patrons helped to save this episode. Yes. Oh, very good point. Uh, uh, <laughs> we lost power partway through recording this episode. Like two thirds or three quarters of the way through this episode. Yep. Most of the way through. And my external power source uh, kicked on, kept the computer running, kept the recording yep. going. Which was paid for by the money we get on Patreon. Yes, so, so. you all made this episode happen <laughs> more on time. Because if that power had gone out, we would have been recording tomorrow. Because I would have been in too much of a rage-fueled... Oh, yeah. State of mind to keep talking about brains. Gone to sleep. (laughs) So yes, this episode persisted because of equipment we were able to buy with Patreon funds. So huge shout out to all of our patrons. Brought to you by and saved by patrons like you. Absolutely. (laughs) So thank you to everyone for listening uh, to this discussion. Absolutely. About brains. I think it's probably about time for us to wrap up. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We both do brains we both have a way of doing when i do it i am specifically doing an impersonation of the zombie kid from Yu-Gi-Oh! abridged oh yeah Yeah. he has the voice of a zombie angel (laughs) i forgot about that yeah that's the that's the line (laughs) in my head is him in the comedy version of Yu-Gi-Oh! yep like brains (laughs) bye Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.